0: Hi there, and welcome back to Good Distinctions. I'm your host, Will Wright, and Good Distinctions are the spice of life. I'm joined today, I have the great plev- pleasure of interviewing Dr. Larry Chapp, uh, author of the new book, Confession of a Catholic Worker. Uh, Dr. Chapp, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure. If you haven't seen uh, Dr. Chapp's work, both his books, his blog, uh, you, know, you make a note in the new book about, yes, I have a blog, don't make fun of me. But I I think blogs are great. I love them. It's perfect for me as a way to get my thoughts out. So I'm appreciative. Uh, You also write a lot for the National Catholic Register and uh, are part of the Catholic Worker Movement, which is uh, a large focus of this book. So yes, yes. First, Dr. Chap, who are you? Uh, For those who maybe haven't come across your work, who are you? And uh, why did you feel compelled to write this book?
1: Well, who I am is, I mean, I'm basically a a blue-collar boy from Lincoln, Nebraska, which is where I was born. Uh, I'm the only college-educated kid in in my whole family uh, going back generations, so I was kind of the uh, sort of an egghead that that stood out like a sore thumb in in the midst of of my family. But, you know, growing up was fine. I grew up basic, middle-class, you know, middle-class blue-collar kid. But then eventually, uh, you know, I I decided, as my faith deepened, I decided I wanted to go to seminary. So I did spend, uh, I got my undergraduate degree from a minor seminary and then my first MA in theology from uh, Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, theology. But I discerned out of priesthood. I decided, no, I I really wanted to pursue an academic career rather than a priestly one, priestly Hmm. vocation. And so I went off to Fordham University and got my PhD at Fordham in 1994, where I specialized in communio theology, resource mount theology, theology in particular of people like Balthazar and Ratzinger. Uh, and I got my first job at DeSales University in 1994 mm-hmm. as well. And I taught at DeSales for 20 years, which is where I met my wife, uh, Carmina Chappell, who also has a PhD. Hers is from Duquesne. Uh, in fact, she. Uh, I hired her. As a matter of fact, I was <laughs> department chair at the time. And uh, I spent 20 years at DeSales and um, we lived a very sort of happy, comfortable life. I was the tenured full professor and, you know, doing well and at a nice little house in the burbs in the woods and eating out at fancy restaurants, going to Rome three times a year. And because mm. you had expendable income and And all that sort of stuff. And it just, we were teaching both my wife and I about Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement and Catholic social teaching. And after a while, we both just realized how empty our little upper middle class life was there in the burbs, and that we weren't, we were talking the talk, but we weren't walking the walk. And we felt like, Hmm. well, you know, we really, do we really mean what it is that we're teaching? And if we do, do we want to do something more than tea? And this is no slight at all on teaching. I, I, you know, teaching is a great profession. I encourage anyone to do it. We're just talking personally for me, for us. We just decided it wasn't it wasn't enough for us. So Hmm. I retired from teaching. We bought a Catholic worker farm, which is a Catholic worker farm, which simply means we do whatever we want with it and then call it a Catholic worker farm, which befits <laughs> the rather fluid nature of Catholic worker farms. But in reality, we grow food for the poor. We're Benedictine Oblates. We have a chapel on our, on our little farm here. We do liturgy of the hours. Uh, we do have the Eucharist reserved here in the warm weather months. The chapel is hmm. not heated, so we do remove the Eucharist in the winter because we don't use the chapel as much. Uh, but we get a lot of groups here that help us out. We have sheep, we have dairy goats, we have chickens, uh, and uh, but our main focus really is what the co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, uh, Peter Morin, what he called the, the the farms. He his vision was they were agronomic universities, which is a fancy way of saying he was a homesteader before his time. You know, he a back to the lander, a localist, all that kind of stuff, a distributist before his time. And so what we do is we do bring people here and we pray with them. We have a fellowship with conversation. Uh, the, the work then where they help out and volunteer is just a sidelight to for mm-hmm. the most part, what are really rather really fruitful conversations that we have with people that come here. And so how did that lead oh, to and the I work? started my blog. Yeah, yeah. I started. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I've been at this now for about ten and a half years and about mm-hmm. four years ago. I hadn't been writing at all. I hadn't been teaching. I hadn't been doing Mm. anything theological. And I was on Facebook, though. though My one little sin, (laughs) if you want to call it that, was I was on Facebook. And I would post these relatively long theological comments on the issues of the day. And a lot of my former students uh, loved them and said, chap, Mm. chap, chap, you need to start a blog, a blog. And I said, oh, my God, I hate blogs. I don't want to do a stupid (laughs) blog. There's 10 billion blogs out there. Why does anybody want to read my meanderings? So, but I started it. It's called Gaudium at Spes 22.com. It's a mouthful, I know. Uh, I wish maybe I had named it something else, but it's named after the Vatican II document, Gaudium at Spes, section 22, uh, which has the famous statement, only in the light of the incarnation of Christ does the mystery of man take on meaning. So in other words, mm-hmm. I believe the essence of the council is a Christologically oriented theological anthropology. That's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. And I wanted my blog to be uh, an expositor of the theology of Ressourcement, Ratzinger, Balthazar de Lubac, Gordini, Bouillet, guys like that. And I wanted it to focus on that element of Christology in gaudi Spez. Hmm. And I started writing. It was pretty much just once every 10 days to two weeks, uh, a long blog post of three to six thousand words, depending on the topic. And it caught on. It went viral. Bishop Robert Barron, who I actually knew before my blog uh, from various professional associations. uh, He had me on his show uh, to talk about the blog and which everybody thought it was both. Erudite, yet a bit cheeky. (laughs) So I I thought, well, okay, I'm going to run with this. And uh, then I started a podcast of the same title, a YouTube video. And then I started writing for The Register, for Catholic World Report. And then Mark Brumley of Ignatius Press came calling and said, we want you to write a book. And so the book is pretty much the fruit of all of that come Hmm. to a head. Anyway, that's how we got to where we are now. And I'm, st- I'm sitting here on my farm looking out the window thinking about what book am I going to write next. I'm supposed Beautiful. to write a book. I'm supposed to write a book for Word on Fire hmm. on the universal call to holiness. I hope no one from Word on Fire is listening to this because it's going very slowly. <laughs> it's already two years <laughs> behind schedule. And, uh, but anyway, that's what I'm doing.
0: <laughs> well, and I'm very glad. Uh, I, we talked about this a bit before I started recording, but my colleague uh, Sean and I, who I've had on the show before on uh, the other teachers at my school. We love your blog. We love everything you write in the register. And uh, a large part of that, I, I don't think it's over dramatic to say that your work inspired me to do what I'm doing. Um, this idea wow. of good distinctions um, is definitely one of the contributing factors because good distinctions, our mission, my mission is to reignite good conversation, seek out the best distinctions and inspire others to do the same. And I see that same soul, that same spirit in what you do. Uh, it, it's very well, you. middle of the road. Uh, n- I, I love
1: erudite and cheeky. I think that's, that's <laughs> a very apt description
0: of your book, but
1: uh, yeah. I think humor is important. I think humor is important. I really do.
0: All right. Well, and
1: so Sean and I were le- reading the book together
0: and uh, there was one quote in particular. I'll, I'll read part of it here. We were, Discussing how we love our traditionalist friends. Uh, but there's many times where maybe there's overstatements, sometimes understatements, sort of missing that, uh, that virtuous middle. Uh, but you say this, you say, to this day, I find that I am often far more at home with my pot smoking liberal friends whose worldview is a total hot mess of secular pagan syncretistic drivel than I am with the pinched up fiddleback fuss budgets. I know who strike me as closeted skeptics in search of something, anything, to hang the hat of, of certitude on. We read yeah. that and we said yes, completely. <laughs> I actually texted him uh, a screenshot of the book and I said this, uh, and he said, <laughs> I, "I just read that." So,
1: well, it's so true, and I mean, uh, people. Some people are kind of shocked when when they read that in the book that. Mm. You know, I'm, I, I, I'm exaggerating a bit, you know, all, because all things being equal, I do prefer the company of my more deeply Catholic friends if they actually mm-hmm. have sanity and life and personality and humor. Right. And, and, but those are all the things I find, sadly, I think more often than not, in my more liberal secular friends that I do. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a pretty conservative Catholic guy, so most of my friends are in the conservative wing of, of the Catholic spectrum. Right? and and it just seems like so many of them these days uh, act like they've been sucking on green lemons their entire life. They they just they just have no humor. Everything's mm. heresy. Everything's to be denounced. Nothing is good. Everything is horrible. Uh, we need we just need to roll back the clock to 1955. Uh, all the stupid novus ordo popes and Vatican II popes, and it's like, oh mm. man, that just wear. I'm sorry. Yeah, the church is larded with all kinds of garbage and prop, but that just wears me out. Just let me sit down with, you know, some of my more secular friends and, mm-hmm. you know, have a beer and a laugh and, and not, not have to worry about so much of these dour things. Well, and, and they're not unimportant
0: uh, things that they're talking about, but it's, no. it's, this, it's a very strong reaction against some very real issues. And one, one of the key themes in your book is a a sort of as you call it a beige catholicism a bourgeois catholicism yeah Uh, so if you would just sort of describe what what is that what does that look like
1: just so people can get a sense the term bourgeois is you know i use it a lot but i've just been chastised by some people for my use of it because in the early 20th century late 19th century both Marxists and fascists used the word bourgeois to mm-hmm. be relatively dismissive of the middle class, which they believed in some ways to be the chief obstacle to social revolution. All right? And so they, they did nothing but pillory the middle class, the middle class, the bourgeois, the bourgeois. But it, its use was not simply by the fascists and the Marxists. The use bourgeois was used by people like Nicholas Berdayev. Uh, Mornier, uh, Dorothy Day, Peter Morne, to, to 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 denote uh, a, a way of life, a mentality, what the mm-hmm. Italian philosopher Augusto da Noce calls the cult of material well-being. And as Berdayev notes in his book, the, the the Bourgeois Mind, he goes, of course the bourgeois has always been with us. The middle class has always been with us. The deal is, is that modern Western European and Amer- North American capitalist consumerist culture has raised the principle of middle-class existence to ultimacy, to Mm -hmm. to the absolute determinative factor in what constitutes the well-being of a culture and a society. And then, once the total emphasis becomes on material well-being, on consumerist excess and always moving forward with our economics, then all of a sudden people begin to think solely in those categories. Catholics who happen to be bourgeois. As the the theologian Tracy Rowland points out, Catholics who happen to be bourgeois, therefore have a hard time negotiating the universal call to holiness, the call to sanctity that the church puts forward, that the gospels put forward, because they've substituted ultimacy with penultimacy, the penultimate things of cars and jobs and vacations and Disney World and all that garbage. All right. And I have all those things. I don't I don't have a garage, but you get my point. All right. Um, those things cannot, cannot become ultimate. And you know mm-hmm. that it's become ultimate in your life when your religion, and this is my critique, when your Catholicism becomes a lifestyle accessory, it becomes a compartmentalized thing that you do for one hour on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. and that There, I've done it. I've done my duty towards my kids or whatever. And you put that little religion thing back in your pocket or store it in your garage next to your oily rags and in your in your Christmas display, you know, and, and say, I'll take that out again in a week and uh, to hell with it the rest of the time. Then you know that you've got the bourgeois mind. Well, and One of the common
0: themes in your book, that one of the critiques is that, and actually I think you say this is the, the point of the book. Yeah, you say precisely my point in this entire book, namely that the attempt to mute the force of radical Catholicism as the only workable form of Catholicism through a series of quote, unquote, realistic compromises with the culture itself is the biggest failure of them all. And I I thought that was spot on, um, sort of in your critique of beige Catholicism and you, you talk about this idea of radical Catholicism. So I'd like to get to that in a moment. Yeah. But this idea that we sort of make these compromises, in our daily lives, like you said, chasing these, uh, penultimate things, calling them ultimate, uh, it's comfortable, right? It's, it's not something yeah. that requires us to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Um, uh, cause another very important theme of the book, of course, is, is the, the Ernstfall, the Balthazar's idea of the choice that yeah. it's inevitable. Um, so anyway, before I get too far afield with this meandering question, um, I guess if you could sort of maybe speak to that idea of Ernst Fall, that idea of the choice and then radical Catholicism. Because Ra- they Catholicism. are the same.
1: Yeah, it's pretty much the same idea. And, and it's also rooted in, uh, you know, Dorothy Day, I don't think read very much of von Balthasar because he had not been translated into English m- until very, very late in her life. Uh, but I, I see so many points of crossover between her and, and, and her emphasis on the need for a radical revolution of the heart Coincides with Vatican II's universal cult to holiness. What she saw in advance, long, you know, but just by reading the saints like Francis de Sales, was that the church needs, in order to avoid this compromise with the world, it needs a radicalized laity. And by radicalized, she simply meant an intent, what's the word we use today, intentional Catholicism. We need laity of an evangelical faith who understand, (coughs) excuse me understand why they're Catholics. So they've embraced Mm. their Catholic faith. It's not simply a religion of cultural drift. And the further and further we get in modern culture away from uh, cultures that are informed by Catholicism, the more your Catholicism is informed by modern culture, the cultural drift you're going to engage in is exactly the opposite direction of a radical Catholicism. You know, 300, 400, 500 years ago, the church could presume an ambient culture that was still largely informed by Christian spiritual principles. So even Mm -hmm. if most people even couldn't read or write, let's say, uh, were uneducated and were just peasants and and shopkeepers and things like that, by a process of cultural osmosis, even if their Catholicism was simply one of cultural drift, they were going to drift in a a Catholic direction. That is not true today. And so Dorothy Mm -hmm. realized the only Catholic of the future is going to be a radical Catholic, one who deeply embraces what's the wor- root of the word ra- radical radix root to mm-hmm. go to the roots of the faith to embrace it. Because if you don't and you simply are engaged in cultural drift, you're eventually going to drift right away from the faith because our culture is not. And this is Balthasar's point as well. Then he uses this German term in his book, The Moment of Christian Witness, De mm-hmm. Ernst and it's a German term that simply means uh, a, de- a, a big decision in a motive, a moment of crisis. And it's a decision that is forced upon you t- t- in, mm-hmm. the, in the sense that not to choose is to choose. In other words, th- there's no middle ground. There's no backing away and saying, OK, mm-hmm. I'm not going to choose in favor of my faith. I'm just going to go along to get along with modernity. Well, that's a choice because modernity is not Catholic. And so if you, if you choose not to choose for Christ, you're actually by a default process choosing for the Antichrist, the uh, modernity, the, 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 the other side of, of the equation, the anti-gospel, which modernity in many ways represents. So Balthazar mm-hmm. says the Christian of the future is going to be one who engages in this end decision in favor of Christ, or he won't be at all. Carl Rahner, of course, famous, and I'm not a huge Rahner fan, but Rahner said the, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or he won't be at all. These are all mm-hmm. just different ways of saying the same thing. You better be a deeply committed Catholic by choosing and by effort, uh, by faith, or you're not going to be a Catholic at all. And we see this as the church is now hemorrhaging millions and millions of people in Western culture every year. Well,
0: when- and so what how does this work in terms of the individual versus the collective because i'm thinking about this as a catholic okay the the Ernstfall is coming or it's already here for me perhaps maybe i'm somebody Mm -hmm. who's not yet embraced the faith um how will i know it when i see it on the one hand and then also how can i be aware because one thing you say in the book is that uh You you found attractive in the modern philosophers, despite their errors, that they have a concern for the human subjectivity of knowing and the category of history as a constitutive (laughs) metaphysical principle at the core of human existence, which makes complete sense, Uh, whether you're Catholic or not, whether you're a modernist or not, is, of course, our human experience, our history informs where we are today, how we live where we come from, what our culture is, what our language is. Uh, And so how does this work for the individual?
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's really important to understand that the the person that can do this solely as an individual, like some sort of lone prophet like Elijah, you know, fighting against the prophets of Baal, you know, those are going to be few. It's hard to swim upstream. It really is. Mm-hmm. as a lone fish all by yourself. It's easier if you're surrounded by eight billion other saints. Uh, mm-hmm. And I really therefore think it's very important for 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 Catholics who realize I need a deeper commitment to my faith or it's going to wither and die. You have to seek out other Catholics who think that way. You do. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it, you talk about when do you know in this moment is upon you? Well, Usually, if you drift away from the faith and just end up as a non-believer, like I said, by by cultural drift, you probably are never aware that you've made the Ernstfall decision uh, because you just have quietly made that decision by not deciding the Catholic, however, whose senses finally wakes up usually through some sort of crisis in their life, a mini crisis. Mm-hmm like a broken relationship, your fiance dumps you, whatever, whatever it is, or a major crisis, health crisis, a a loved one dies, or you yourself Mm -hmm. have major health or what, or just a deep, deep existential crisis of despair and anxiety that overcomes you. I think when, when an individual reaches that state, where they realize, I and we see people like this all the time. You realize, mm-hmm. I I really need to rediscover my Catholic faith. Man, mm-hmm. I wish I had a closer walk with God. They may not even say to themselves at first, "Gee, I need to be X Y Z kind of Catholic now." I need to be saying thirty-seven rosaries a day and going to five daily masses. You, you get the point. That it doesn't form in their heads immediately. I think usually mm-hmm. it forms as just this small little chirping bird in your ear that says this is God speaking and you need to come home and you feel that tug in your soul and you feel that tug in your heart. And, and then you, 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 you go to the church and more often than not, you find disappointment. (laughs) You find, Mm -hmm. Oh, geez, this is just kind of the culture with Jesus sprinkles on top. Uh, So I'm not really getting fed here. The homily was what I call a lettuce homily. Let us be nice to the nice. It's nice to be nice to the nice, uh, you know, and, and that's not that's not going to cut it. So if you survive that or if you do find a great parish, then you need you. And this is where the Internet is so helpful. You need to seek out a community of people that think like you think or are searching like you search better to have it be in person. But if it has to be a virtual online relationship, that's that's fine, too. I know people that do it that way. But you need to band together. And I don't mean in cult like us versus them, apocalyptic doomsday cult sort of things, but just as, as like a support group. I, I need mm-hmm. the help. I know a lot of people in my area <clears throat> where I live. I go to a, an, or, an ordinary parish, Anglican ordinary Catholic parish, and we have a homeschooling cooperative in the parish. And I do know that uh, a lot of families that are seeking this deeper walk with God have been helped greatly by, the, by establishing bonds of friendship with those in the homeschooling cooperative. Now, you teach in, in this Catholic school, and I'm sure you see it there too, that mm-hmm. like-minded Catholic individuals bond together. I think that's what we need to do.
0: Well, and that was definitely my experience. I worked in a parish for the last seven years uh, before teaching, as director of catechesis and evangelization and director of um, liturgy and music for a time as well. Lots of hats at the parish, but uh, people were definitely strengthened by coming together in like mind. Um, And in fact, it was a very odd sort of setup for a parish because it was in the middle of a 55 plus retirement community. And yet I was tasked with starting a children's catechesis program. So people were actually seeking that parish out uh, and forming very intentional
1: community that way. Yeah, uh, and if I were to give advice to any priests out there who hmm. want to build these kinds of connections for Catholics, and you know, a priest who gets it, who understands what we're up against here, I, I, I have always found an emphasis on Eucharistic adoration to be extremely, and not just because it's great to adore the Lord in his Eucharistic presence, But because of um, the atmosphere that it builds Mm -hmm. and the kind of Catholic that it attracts and what happens Mm -hmm. when you really have weekly or biweekly Eucharistic adoration hours at night at a convenient time for people, followed by social gathering, social hour, maybe even a potluck meal or something. All of a sudden you find, oh, my God, I'm surrounded by 30 other Catholics who think just like me. And I had no idea that guy lives eight blocks from me. Oh, this guy lives Mm -hmm. two miles from me. All right, and 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 then those connections are made. <clears throat> so
0: deeply rooted to that, and this idea of, of potlucks combined with eucharistic adoration. Uh, you're actually the second guest within two weeks that have said the same thing. So wow, the Lord's definitely speaking on that. Um, there's got to be something about potlucks. I,
1: I I'm from North Carolina. We understand potlucks. Oh yeah. Uh, well, I just know in my ordinariate parish, they're huge. It's, it's a huge culture builder in our parish big
0: well and deeply rooted in that and living the Eucharist is the liturgy and and you touch on a, a few moments in the book about the liturgy wars so to speak as I call them which is an incredibly unfortunate thing uh, yeah but one of what I wanted to focus on was there's two things you bring up that I think are worth looking at and one is that if prayer is the highest act of the mind, then public liturgical worship is the highest act of culture. And then you also say due to the lifting up of the world into Christ, it is the most public act of all, especially in the United States. We don't understand this. Uh, We see this sort of hard separation of church and state uh, that was invented in the last few decades, um, frankly, and, we don't understand that liturgy is the highest public act of worship and definitely related to, um, culture. It, well, and the root being cult cultus to tilt to oh, yeah, cult. and you bring up, um, uh, uh, Martin's work as well about cult culture cultivation. That's uh, right. So anyway, I'd love to, love you to speak on, on liturgy oh, and then that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, first off, yeah, <clears throat> I used to teach courses on church and politics, And one of the things I always tried to impress upon people is that modern American style radical separation of church and state. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm getting over a cold. I apologize. Mm -hmm. Um, Radical church and state has never even really been that uh, common in the United States, say, for Mm -hmm. maybe the past hundred years. Uh, The framers of our Constitution studiously avoided the language of separation and preferred the language of disestablishment instead, because they viewed separation as a bad idea. It was only until wave after wave after wave of catholic immigrants came into the United States beginning in the middle of the 19th century that the protestant majority started screaming about we need a separation of church and state and then you know Jefferson's famous letter to the Danbury Baptists where he said you know we need a wall of separation the Danbury Baptists were not impressed. They didn't want a wall of separation between church and state. And, and his letter just hit like a thud. It wasn't until the Catholics showed up that the Protestants mm-hmm. started talking about. We need a separation. But then that came back to bite him in the rear end when the secularists became that came to dominate. And, and both mm-hmm. Protestants and Catholics were kicked to the curb. Uh, and so we now have this this mentality as, as Americans that, you know, religion is a private thing and not a public act. Uh, and we need to remember that even for the, our Protestant forefathers, in, in terms of Americans, our Protestant you know, forefathers politically would call national days of prayer to honor this. That, because what they understood, and this is why they didn't argue initially for the language of separation, what they understood was that a nation to be a nation needs to celebrate its religious roots publicly. Because Mm -hmm. what you do not celebrate publicly and you consign merely to the private ultimately becomes a matter of personal taste and choice. All religions are equal because all religions are equally trivial. So, yeah, it's easy to treat all religions as equal when you're basically relegating them to the level of you like fruitcake and he likes Snickers bars. Okay, degustibus non disputanum est. There's no accounting for taste. As soon as religion gets consigned to that, then it's death to Christianity, which is an incarnational faith that understands. And I'm not arguing here that we need an officially Catholic American state that imposes Catholicism from above, what they used to call integralism. I'm not arguing for that. Mm -hmm. But I am arguing for the fact that as Catholics, we need to acknowledge that Eucharistic celebration and our faith commitment to Christ in that celebration is not a private act. It's a public Mm -hmm. act. And according to the Catholic faith, the most public act of all is the re- in, in, in the sense of an action that defines the really real historically, an action that defines the meaning of life and of history and of time and everything the human race has ever done. That act was the death and resurrection of Christ. It is therefore the action with the most public significance. Now, we need to parse that. We need to nuance that. We need to figure out how, what does that translate into with regard to a political regime. But I guarantee you what it does not translate into is a radically privatized view of religion and a radical sense that religion has absolutely nothing to do with the public square.
0: Amen. I mean, you'll get no argument from me on that. I, I think you said it as well
1: as uh, anyone could. But we need to remember, I say this to my students. I asked them, Hey, does England have freedom of religion? And they'll say, well, yeah, well, guess what? There's a church of England. Hey, does yeah. Germany have freedom of religion? Yeah. For Germany is guess what? They tax their citizens in order to support the churches. Same with Switzerland. Same with it. You know, so you get my point as Americans, we get brainwashed into this idea that there's only one way to negotiate the interface between politics and religion. And it's our way. That's simply nonsense.
0: Well, mm-hmm. <clears throat> <clears throat>
1: and
0: it, it- it does sort of encapsulate the whole gamut of human experience. I mean, the liturgical life is the source and summit of the Christian life is the Eucharist precisely because it's through sacramental living that we become (coughs) transformed into Christ first through baptism as the gate uh, gateway of the sacraments. But in the Eucharist, that's precisely how we become cruciform in our living. We become configured to Christ. We become deified, um, And if the liturgy is something that's transcendent, it's something that is the Son offering himself to the Father in the Spirit, in which we're invited to synergistically take part, that has to come to bear in our daily lives. So this idea of, uh, if you could just speak to that idea of of, uh, Peter Moran of cult, culture, cultivation, how does that flow? Because you bring that up in the book, and I think that's so helpful for people.
1: Well, Peter Moran, of course, was a bit of an agrarianist, and what he believed deeply, and I still believe it too, and it's very, it's very Benedictine in its spirituality. Uh, that this is no slight on urban environments, but there is a deep connection between the cultivation of the land, a life oriented around land and place, and there's a deep connection between that and the cultus, the Eucharistic sacrifice. And and the culture that arises out of that. OK, so cult culture uh, and, and, and cultivation, <clears throat> and even much so that that even in an urban environment, the most healthy urban environments are urban environments that retain some kind of connection with cult culture and cultivation uh, that, that don't remain utterly divorced from those things. And you see this in some ways, an attempt in some cities, for example, to create massive green spaces. There's a reason why New York City has Central Park, uh, because a life devoid of some kind of connection with nature, with trees and soil and birds and dirt and sticks and stuff. All right. That, you know, kids that play in the dirt and eat worms, (laughs) you know, your life, you know, I did as a kid, unfortunately, your life is diminished without these things. And the Mm -hmm. Eucharist flows quite naturally out of that. I mean, you go back to the medieval era, right, and the great monasteries, which had then around them on the peripheries, all of these peasant farmers Mm -hmm. right, who were often farming monastery owned lands and so on. But, you know, this is in some ways how the rosary became popular, because as the bells would ring in the monasteries, the people out in the field would want to pray along with the monks and their 150 psalms. And so the 150 beads, and, but instead of a psalm, you'd say, Hail Mary, and so on. Uh, and, and so all of that was simply a way of reinforcing the deep connection between worship, land, and culture. And we've ripped all of those things apart, all of them. And so what we try to do here on our farm is to bring them back together.
0: Well, and it's very natural. I mean, you can go back to the garden. I mean, this is, this is the job Adam was given was, was cultivation, the very yes. first role um, of stewardship. So I think they absolutely flow.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, he was, they were in a garden, not a jungle. Right. And, and, and I think the implication is that it was a well-tended garden. Hmm.
0: Well, and that also definitely highlights the idea of localism. Uh, that I know you said Peter Morin is, is big on, but, yeah. which I'm sure goes right in hand in hand with the principle of subsidiarity, uh, of this yeah. foundational feature of Catholic social teaching that the best decision is made on the lowest possible level and the highest level necessary. And I think yes. it. what I loved about this book and sort of the way you laid it out, uh, and I'm sure this is informed by your view as, as well as my own and anyone who's trying to put these things together is they go together, right? If we focus on Christ being at the center and the sort of uh, the cult informing culture, informing everything in our lives, then all of these different things, whether it be how we live out our Catholicism to not be comfortable, but to actually take up our cross and follow Jesus, to have solid liturgy, uh, which is focused on Christ and true worship. uh, And then, actually practicing the stewardship of what's been given to us, whether it's actual cultivation or some sort of um, spiritual sense or metaphorical sense. Yeah, and
1: Eucharist and prayer has to come first. We always preach that here on our farm. Whenever people come here, we pray first and work second. Mm -hmm. It's aura first, then labora. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. And sometimes we never get to the labora because we spend so much time with the aura. And then we start talking uh, about the prayer that we just engaged in, and uh, all of a sudden we're realizing, oh, we, you had four hours, and now you only have ten minutes to weed the potatoes, but that's okay.
0: Oh, well, get cracking! <laughs> get out there. Yeah, I, I think it, I, I'm not sure if this story is true or not, but I've heard it so many times uh, about Mother Teresa with the sisters, the Missionaries of Charity, um, saying, "Oh, Mother, we have so much to do; we can't spend an hour in adoration." And so her response was great. We're going to spend two hours in adoration. That's right. Uh, And so she definitely
1: understood this. I don't, I've heard that too. And I'm sure it's probably true because it certainly sounds like something that she would say. And I say this to people all the time. I say, well, how can we do in our lives, you know, all this radical Catholicism stuff you're talking about? You know what? In some sense, I, I don't like those kind of questions because you're actually asking me to describe your vocation for you. I can't Mm. do that. I can't I can't pound all of the square pegs into the round holes of your life for you. You've got to do that yourself. I'm articulating basic principles. Now you go and figure out how that's going to apply in your life. But I will say this, and I do lay out some basic ideas. If you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. And don't give Mm. me this nonsense that you're too busy to pray because you can pray while doing other things. And this was Mm. the key understanding of the contemplatives. What's the old joke? You know, is, is it okay if I drink tea while I'm praying? Well, no, but you can pray while you're drinking tea. So that in an ideal setting, yeah, you're going to be quiet. You're going to be kinetically not moving around and you're not going to be drinking tea and so forth while you pray. Mm. You want to focus? But that doesn't mean that the reverse is true, that therefore if I'm doing mundane daily things like making dinner or cultivating a field or working at my desk at work, or what it is that I can't pray while I'm doing those things. What is it St. Paul says? Pray always. Mm-hmm. Pray always. And that was Mother Teresa's point as well. If it doesn't begin, flow through, and end with prayer, it is a useless philanthropic exercise going nowhere. And this is something I emphasize over and over again. The key to holiness, the key to radical Catholic living, is you have to have a prayer life. And I say that to myself as much as to everybody listening, because I fall flat on my face on that because I am a lazy, soft, modern. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I always tell people I'm a leper preaching to other lepers. I try not to be self-righteous because I have no right to be. Well, and holiness
0: is um, I'm glad you're writing the book on the universal call to holiness, because we hear it so often. It's, it's one of the main themes of the Second Vatican Council, and yet not many people seem to take the time to unpack it and actually understand what that means That's in right. the minutia of daily living. Um, one of the, I, I recently applied, I haven't heard back yet, but I, I've applied to a, a research program in the UK for a PhD in theology, and my uh, research proposal was on uh, defining active participation with the paschal mystery is an interpretive key and so i'll be bringing in a lot of balthazar into that for sure uh where is where is this program uh maryville maryville oh, okay. institute i'm still waiting to hear yeah. back like i said so i haven't been accepted but but that's what i'm working towards and one of the things that my advisor and i um, are really pushing there is in order to understand how to actively participate in the liturgy or in our lives, for that matter, it presumes that we're trying to be holy. It presumes that we're trying to be saints,
1: which I guess we shouldn't presume anymore. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, boy, this is so big on my radar these days. It's what I write Mm -hmm. a lot about in Catholic Report and The Register, which is what I call the sort of dumbing down or the numbing down of the church today. I have no problem. None with pastors who want to be very, very, very compassionate, gradualistic, slow, mm-hmm. with, with people that need to be brought along in the faith slowly, slowly, tenderly, tenderly. You know, nobody likes a bull in a china shop who just rushes in and throws mm-hmm. 10 million catechisms somebody and says, there, unless you believe now you're going to hell. Obviously, nobody <laughs> does that, but you get my point. Now, the thing is this, though. It's one thing to say. Sinners are welcome in the church and we'll bless the sinners and we'll help the sinners and come one, come all. The church is not a club for the saints. We want the sinners in. We're all sinners here. I'm all in favor of that. But the presumption has got to be that every single one of those sinners believes that they're a sinner and in need of repentance. The goal has to be Hmm. conversion, repentance, sanctity. And you can fail at that 10 bazillion times. I don't care. But if you come into the church with a mentality of repentance, you are welcome. If you come into the church with a chip on your shoulder that says, I'm a sinner, I love my sins, and I want the church to change her teachings on these sins, to call them not sins, I'm sorry, there's the door, head on back out, because I have nothing to say to you. Uh, and I say that with some caveat, well, if they're interested, then obviously I would sit and talk with them. But you get my sure. point, all right? The ter- As Bishop Robert Barron says... I think quoting Cardinal the late Cardinal George, we are welcoming anyone into the church, but on Christ's terms, not theirs. And mm-hmm. that's that's the that's what really gets me going these days. When there's so many people in the church these days who say that compassion and mercy and forgiveness means that I have to bless the sin as well as the sinner. No, thank you. That's not Christianity.
0: Well, and that absolutely, I would echo that. But you also bring up in the book, the other extreme, right? This idea that, well, and I, I don't want to call it this self-righteous sort of approach because most of the people yeah. I've seen who embody this are, are humble, truly humble, but sort of misguided. Um, yeah. and I, I yeah. love the way you say this too. You say, uh, I'm sure my experiences in this matter are not unique among professors of theology as we all have had to confront the catechism thumpers and their view that evangelization is a simple matter of stringing together a daisy chain of quotes from magisterial documents. Yeah. I will go ahead and echo, yes, this professor of theology has heard that from undergrads, from high school students. Absolutely.
1: Well, and increasingly more so. And I actually think this is a dialectic between these two sides of the equation that the, the, the dialectic feeds off of the other... Binary. You've mm-hmm. got these ultra progressive anything go types in, in the church today, and that has then provoked this reactive retrenching into we just need to emphasize orthodoxy and dogmas and doctrines and proper morality. And mm-hmm. the, the as, as long as people have catechisms memorized and church documents memorized and know exactly what the church teaches, then all will be well. And I've done my job as an evangelist. It's not true. I mean, I, as a teacher, and you know as a teacher, I can quote 10 million words out of the catechism to students, and not one word of it will take root, as, as in Christ's parable of the seed into the rocky, you know, the soil, different kinds of soil. Mm-hmm. If you're throwing those seeds into rocky soil, it's, it doesn't matter how many magisterial documents you throw at mm-hmm. people. All right? You need, you need to prepare, and once again, cultivation. Right. This is what you learn from tilling the land that you you can plant 10 million tomato plants. But ain't one of them going to give you a tomato if your soil stinks. Okay, Mm -hmm. And that's what we need. We need to do a preparatory evangelizing today, which I think what I call the catechism thumpers don't understand and don't get. That it's a deep, deep dive into the underbelly of our culture that you have to come to know. And you have to empathize with, and you have to have a what Romano Guardini called, he calls it the threshold of our existence, what modern (laughs) philosophers call the mataxu, the in-between. We live in the in-between, the in-between heaven and earth, or even heaven and hell. And we need to feel the tension of that in-between within ourselves to be able to therefore compassionately go out to evangelize with somebody who, like I said before, I'm a leper preaching to other lepers. I can talk to you and bring you to the faith because I know exactly what you're going through. But mm. you cannot do that. Nemo dot quo non hobbit. You cannot give what you do not that have cow, yeah. if you don't. If you don't pray and de- dive deeply into relational development of personal friendships with people that you're seeking to evangelize.
0: Well, and in, in my discussion with, uh, with your book, with, uh, my friend, Sean, one of the things that came up that we really truly appreciate about your approach as well as the, um, as Gordini and a lot of the resource month thinkers is this idea that, which I've heard a, a thousand times in a thousand different ways, you have to know the arguments of the person you're speaking with better than they do. You have to be able to say it better than they can, but huge caveat. As you say, you have to step into their shoes and truly embody the world in which they live, at least yeah. for a moment, to, yeah. to sympathize with them, to really grasp it, then you can have a you conversation. Do. That last part okay. is is lacking in a lot of people. It is because
1: they they immediately go into a relatively superficial form of apologetical mode, which is like you're a teacher, I was a teacher. You know, some smart alecky student, right? What if, uh, what if I, what about this? And they think they they've given you some great big gotcha question that no uh-huh. theologian or Christian has ever thought of before, ever, right?
0: Well, who created God? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, well, well, uh, yeah.
1: Exactly. That that's yeah. a big comeback. And so, yeah. so the fact is, a certain kind of apologist then immediately goes into argument mode. I need to mm-hmm. win this. De- oh, this is a debate, and I need to win the debate. And I, I need to vanquish this intellectual foe who's dared to raise these questions in front of me. All right. And OK, you might win the debate. You might reduce that student to utter silence. And as they walk <laughs> out of the room, they're saying to them, so what a jerk. All right. I, yeah, I don't buy any of that nonsense. And they don't buy any of it, not because the arguments were unsound, but because mm. the soil wasn't ready for the argument. Because the question the student ask it, it asks, is asking is not the question the student is asking. There's there's a question behind the question. And so, like you just pointed out, the gift of a modern day religion teacher is to so empathize with unbelief, disbelief, skepticism, those empathize with it, to enter into it, to understand it from within, from its guts as to why people would opt for this. Think it through yourself. Come up with every dadgum great answer you can think of that's actually an authentic answer, not a set of formula. Hmm. And when a student then asks you a question, or it doesn't even be a student, just any interlocutor asks you a question about the faith, you step back and with deep respect and without confrontation say, you know what, that's a great question, but here's what I think you're really asking. So if you don't mind, let me reformulate the question for you. Hmm. And you reformulate it for them and their eyes get as big as platters because they realize, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, you do understand. Oh, you get it. And even at the end of the day, if they walk out of that classroom and they don't still completely agree with you and they're not converted yet, you have planted a seed and a little piece of soil that you helped to form that might be eventually that pine tree growing out of the boulder that you see from the side of the road. And you wonder, how does that pine tree grow out of a boulder? <laughs> All right. Because there was one spot in that rock that had a little soil in it that's, that a seed fell into. All right. And that's, that's what we have to do as evangelists today.
0: When you bring this up in the book as well, and it's, it's something that I take very seriously and our religion department at the school uh, intentionally takes seriously. If a student asks a question, we have to take their question very, as you say in the book, very, very seriously. That whatever it is, as long as they're asking it in good faith, as long as they're actually seeking the truth in some way, you have to take them seriously because as you say, if you don't, you do. Yeah, We might be, and, and we can't, something you said earlier, we can't assume a Christian culture. We can't assume a Catholic uh, way of living. It, and this cultural drift is completely um, yeah. run away at this point. There's no, um, there's no stagnation. We're either moving up or downward. And, and so if we don't take them seriously, we might be the only contact point that they have with the faith. And
1: so that, that moment that we've given that grace, that opportunity is gone. I'm sure you've run into this. How many times do you have a student say to you at the end of a, of a class session where you were, you really hit some good themes and talking some good talk. All right. And the student comes up to you afterwards and says, this is the first time anybody's ever explained it to me like that. How come I never hear stuff like this in church? Hmm. Exactly. Exactly how come you never hear stuff like this in church why does it take a 50 minute class from doctor nobody here to 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 give and in the words when i was teaching i'm sure what you teach this isn't some esoterica concocted out of my brain this is standard stuff you learn in theology school okay And yet, why is it that we don't hear more of this stuff in church? And I tell you why. Mm. Because in seminary, and I was in seminary, you are taught to dumb things down. You are. You Mm. are taught, don't give people theology and homilies. Tell them a joke. Tell them a story. Leave them with a little aphorism to take home. Uh, All right? uh, The last thing in the world you're supposed to do is to give them meat and milk and substance, because nobody listens to that. Well, of course, nobody's going to listen to a dry academic homily of some kind where you're standing up there parsing fine Thomistic metaphysical categories. But there's a way. I mean, C.S. Lewis, Mm -hmm. Chesterton, guys like Cardinal Newman. There's a way, even the early church fathers, Augustine. There's a way to take big theological ideas and to put them in a manner that average people can understand in the existential categories of their existence. That's what it means to be a radical Catholic as a teacher. As a teacher, if teaching is your vocation, catechizing is your vocation, learn to translate big ideas into common words and common concepts that people can grasp, and you will change the world. Well, and that goes back to your
0: point about beginning at a place of prayer, right? Because you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to boil that down in a way that makes sense unless you're contemplating it. And that's not just sort of
1: scholarly... Um, yeah. You know, Which seeking means, knowledge yeah, that your prayer has to uh, I highly recommend Lexio Divina praying mm. over the scriptures or Lexio Divina praying over spiritual reading of some kind. Rosaries are great. I pray rosary. I also do liturgy of the hours. So in other words, formal prayers with set prayers. That's that's a great way to proceed as a kind of discipline. But there's also no substitute for contemplative meditative prayer where you digest a piece of scripture or digest one paragraph for a great piece of spiritual writing. And you let it, you let it germinate in your mind and bear fruit and then prayer will flow out of that. And then when somebody asks you a question that touches that nerve, you realize, Oh, I have something to say. I have something to offer to this person.
0: Well, and I've seen the Lord speak to me and, and people ask, well, how do you hear God speak? I said, well, it's not usually a voice. It's not like someone's speaking to me uh, like we're speaking. It's it's usually yeah. some sort of movement of the soul, some sort of, uh, like you say, that little nerve that's touched. But it it happens way too often to be coincidence where something that comes to me in prayer, something that I read is directly applicable to something that comes up in class or in a real world scenario within the next two, three days. That's it, right. It happens all the time. Uh, and it's not like I'm just suddenly it's not like, OK, go out and look for red Kia's and now you're going to see red Kia's all over the road. It's not that I That's really right. do believe it's God saying you're going to need this. So pay attention. Here you go. Um, and, you know, being docile oh, no, to the Holy no, Spirit.
1: Yeah, uh, I think we need to. Uh, one of the things that the modern world has taught us in a bad way is that the supernatural doesn't really exist. You might mm-hmm. believe in it. You might go someplace like Valhalla when you die. But this is part of this sort of cult of well-being, the replacing mm-hmm. of ultimate realities with penultimate ones. One of the downsides of that is you begin to fundamentally disbelieve in the efficacy and agency of a supernatural world. You might intellectually assent to the idea that, yeah, that stuff exists. But reality is that it it doesn't hit home. So <clears throat> one of the things that Putting yourself under the tutelage of Christ and the faith teaches you is that, and I've written about this, the veil between this world and the next is actually very thin. Mm -hmm. It's not a wall of separation between the supernatural and natural. It's a semi-permeable membrane where we we go to and fro. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm a big believer that God speaks to us in our prayers, in our dreams, speaks to us in things that, oh, that was just a coincidence. No, I remember I will tell you one th- story. I was once in Rome and I was walking down a street and without any provocation, I suddenly started thinking about a, a guy I knew when I was a boy, a very, very dear friend of mine. In fact, we were close, close friends all through grammar school and through junior high. He was my best friend. And for some reason, I hadn't seen him in like 30 years, 35 years. And didn't even think about him ever, really. Just a non—you know—one of those friends you had when you were a kid, just don't think about anymore. All right. All of a sudden, this guy's name pops into my head. I walk (laughs) two blocks, and there he is, coming around a corner in Rome. Right? Okay. And that is the in—you know what—that that was such an astounding thing. That's where you realize there are no such things as a Christian as a coincidence. Mm. And we sat down, we had a great conversation. You know, he, He's an atheist, and he was searching for God, and one of the reasons why he went to Rome and so on. <laughs> God brought us together. And we need to understand this in our prayer life as well. Little ideas and things that come into your head. They might be your ideas, but they're your ideas as prompted and moved by God. Likewise, we need to understand that the evil one can put ideas in your head. And the evil one can put temptations into your head, which is why you need to cultivate the practice of inviting in the, the, good, the good angels right? <laughs> and, and the good aspect of the supernatural.
0: One of the, um, one of the things that came up, not, not in your book uh, as much, but something that came from discussion about it, uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. We were discussing, my friend Sean and I were discussing the influence of Protestant views of atonement. Uh, specifically Lutheran and Calvin views and how it affects Christians' lives, daily lives, like how they go about their daily lives. And I guess mm-hmm. the question is, do you think that that view of atonement has also affected modern Catholics? Yes. And maybe even radical traditionalists?
1: Uh, yes, I think it has, unfortunately. Uh, there, because there are Catholic versions, especially of the, the Calvinist doctrines of limited atonement, mm-hmm. you know, that, that Christ did not die for everyone. He only died for those who would eventually accept him. Or in stronger versions of predestination, he only died for the elect, that, that, mm-hmm. the, those that God predestined for heaven and you know, hell. Now, most Catholics are not strong predestination types like that. But there is this this overriding sense that there are the elect and the unelect and Mm -hmm. the Catholics are the elect and non-Catholics are the unelect. And there's this recent resurgence of what I call the doctrine of the Massa Damnata or that the masses of people are going to be damned. Most people are going to hell. Uh, we've seen this in publications like Crisis Magazine, where Eric Salmons, mm-hmm. the editor, who I like, who's a good guy. But he's written article after article of late about how we need to recover this notion that most people are going to hell in order that we have the motivation to evangelize or the motivation to save people. And, and, and so there is this sense of uh, a vision of salvation that essentially evolves around saving people from the eternal fires of hell that salvation is reduced to this, mm-hmm. uh, that soteriology, the, 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 what the cross represents, what Christ's death on the cross means is reduced to simply he paid the debts for our sin. So if you have faith in that, attend to the sacraments. Those debts are applied to your sins. I mean, you, you, those, that, that debt payment is applied to your sins. Now you get to go to heaven. Other people outside of that fold aren't going to heaven. These, these I think, are really distorting ideas if however you have a view of salvation i don't want, I, i'm not here to give an eschatological census i'm not here to tell you how many people are going to heaven or hell and that's my mm-hmm. problem with the traditionalists who are constantly emphasizing most people are going to hell they don't know and you can't know that all right that is not given to us to know how many people what we are given to know is this and this is very pauline very saint paul and very johannine gospel of john Christ's death and resurrection fundamentally save us by giving us divine life, by divinizing us, by rising us up into the Trinitarian life. Now, that involves purgation of sin. Yes. That involves paying the debt of our sins. Yes. But that's mere justification. The Mm -hmm. ultimate point of the cross and resurrection is sanctification, the raising us up. And why? Because sin is a wound. Sin is not a transgression so much it is a a violation of some law that God established rather arbitrarily, like stop signs are red rather than green. Okay, those are arbitrary laws, and most of the commandments Mm -hmm. are arbitrary like that. So unfortunately, I've crossed one of God's arbitrary laws, and I got to be punished now and all that. No, sin is a wound. The reason why Mm -hmm. sin is wrong is because it harms the image of God within us. Now, why does God care? that the image of God within us is destroyed and ruined by sin because he has big plans for us. He wants us to come up higher. As Jesus says in the prayer. come up higher, come up higher, but sin stands in the way of that. So in our evangelizing, I think it's very important to adopt an image of salvation as bringing people out of the hell that they're already in, which is a deep wound that they have and healing them come Mm -hmm. into the church Come into her sacramental life, her prayer life, into her communion, into her fellowship, and we will bind up your wounds, and we will bring you the divine life of Christ. We will, we will incorporate you into the Trinitarian life of God, and you will now see things that you have never seen before. The message is a positive one. I'm not here to say don't preach hell, and so, but can we please stop this nonsense that the fundamental message of salvation is simply a negative one? Retrieving you from hell and, and, and making sure you don't go there for all eternity. It's so much richer and deeper than that.
0: Well, and, and if I'm speaking frankly, it's a, it's a very pathetic uh, motivation to evangelize. If, it is. if that's it, if that's the only thing that you're doing is, well, I don't want everyone to go to hell. So uh, let's get out there and evangelize. And if you take that emphasis away, then why, why should we even care?
1: No, that yeah, good it 's horrible oh, that says a lot, right. I know a guy who said <laughs> to me once because I was talking to him about this, you know without hell, if let 's say nobody goes to hell, then why should I bother going to church? Why should I bother being a good husband and a father, and so why am I busting my chops to be all that? And I looked at him I said, "Are you crazy? Are you kidding? Are you telling <laughs> me that it 's simply fear of hell that keeps you faithful to your wife, not that you love her, not that you want <laughs> right. to be faithful to her, because you realize mm. what a gross jerk you would be to cheat on your wife and how it would harm her and therefore you and that's not your motivation your motivation is i don't want to go to hell so i'm not going to commit adultery well that's a real low level motivation isn't it mm-hmm. what you're essentially saying is something very unCatholic, very unChristian. saint thomas aquinas said our will is fundamentally oriented to the good even mm-hmm. when we sin even when we do evil we do it under some aspect of the good We're choosing this sin because we see some good in it. What makes it sinful is that you're sacrificing a greater good to a lesser good. Okay, and, and and Aquinas understood this. So one of the things the gospel does is gives us a proper ordering of the goods in our life and therefore puts Humpty Dumpty back together again, helps us live integral, holistic, wonderful, joyous lives. The gospel makes us happy. That's what the mm-hmm. beatitudes are. Beatus, happy is the man that does these things, not morose and sullen is the man who white knuckles his way through these commandments. No, happy is the man who does these things. OK, mm-hmm. and and if you're going to tell me, no, I'm not happy doing any of those things. I say, Buster, you've got some work to do. You've you, you got more problems going on there than simply a benighted view of hell. I'll tell you that right now. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: and it would all uh, it makes it calls into question the life <clears throat> well lived, so to speak, or not well lived of a person who thinks they have all the right answers and yet doesn't seem to apply them. the full Uh, I mean, if if you're operating out of a place of just the fear of hell you're not going to be living the christian life you're not going to be uniting yourself to christ and laying yourself down uh daily in sacrifice i mean you you say this in the book you say that orthodoxy is no guarantor of orthopraxy um and you were speaking in your seminary uh yeah experience but there's a lot of truth there that we can almost and especially today in this modernist milieu or even postmodernist milieu that we can live almost these bifurcated lives where I have my church life and then I have my worldly life, so to speak. Uh and the whole point of your book really is to say Yeah, bring those together, cut that out, and <laughs> live for Christ.
1: Live for Christ. It's so much happy. I mean, yeah, if you're if you're <laughs> Going to do all this stuff simply to avoid hell. You're going to end up with a very minimalist approach to things, for starters. Mm-hmm. What are the rules that I have to do to get into heaven? And I'll just do those because the rest of it's, let me tell you something, if that's your mentality, then you need to examine the fact you might be on your way to hell. Because what that says to me is you don't really love Christ. You don't really love the good. You don't mm-hmm. really love God. You're not doing any of these things out of a deeper, deeper attraction. To the true, the good, the beautiful, the joyous, the happy, all those. You're, no, you're just doing it because, well, uh, they say if I do this, I'm going to go to the state pen. So I'm not going to do this. <laughs> oh, really? So, yeah, it's just it, it boggles my mind. And I say this to people all the time. Okay, I, I accept hell. I, hell is real. So on. But even if hell didn't exist, if all we had in the next life were varying levels of heaven, I would still be chomping at the bit to get people to live the gospel because the gospel is true and makes you happy. It's true, good, and beautiful. It is what makes for a happy, well-integrated, wonderful life. It is what joy is made of. Hmm. Uh, and, and so even if hell, I mean, there are religions in the world that don't have a concept of hell that seem to do just fine. Thank you very much. Once again, I'm not arguing hell doesn't exist and that nobody goes there. I'm simply saying I, it is flawed and false to say that unless we have this hyperfixation on the torments of hell and that most people are going there, that we're not going to do anything in the Christian life. I think that is so silly. I really do. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you, you,
0: you mentioned this quote from Ratzinger about the cross hanging over the world, and we cling to it. I love that image. And uh, mm-hmm. you, you end the book this way. This is the last paragraph of the book. Uh, speaking about this person who is concerned about everything going on in the church, concerned about the world to the extent that they're having a crisis of faith uh, and they're just lost adrift in this these worries and concerns. You say they're like a person adrift at sea who spies a rock jutting out from the water. And as they seek to cling to it, they curse the slippery moss that covers it but it's a rock in the ocean. And so of course it has moss on it, which I love that. Uh, Better to find that floating beam of wood, that thin arboreal presence that alone stands between us and the abyss below. And upon which our savior, the only savior once hung. I, I loved that ending. I love that, that image because that absolutely summarizes where we are. And it it, personally, it gave me a lot of peace. I mean, I, um, I'll, I'll share this. I, uh, in, in December when, uh, fiducia suplicans came out, I had a mini moment of crisis, shall we say? And, you know, I'm looking at the, actually one of my students sent me a message and said, is this real? And I looked at it and I said, I don't know. Let me look. And so I looked at the news and I'm only seeing the headlines. I hadn't read the document and I had that moment of crisis. And so I thought to myself, okay, I need to cling to Christ here very much like this person with the rock in the middle of the sea. And then I, I actually called my friend, Sean. And I said, all right, man, you got to talk me down. Uh, I'm up. I'm yeah. on the top of the yeah. ladder. You got to talk me down. And he did. And we had a, we actually did a, a whole episode on good distinctions sort of sifting through various um, related minutiae in the document and the headlines, but no one is um, sort of immune from these little moments of emotional outbursts, should we say? Uh, And and so it's a good reminder to remember that we can't ever leave the church. Like that's not the, that's, that's a a terrible plan when the seas are rough, you don't jump in the ocean.
1: Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. That is how, yeah. When, when I look at the church, and see the imbecilic things that go on in the church sometimes, the <laughs> sinful things. I repeat, Lord. And I'm thinking, well, look around. Where, where else? The world? No. That's a dead yeah. end. Other Christian denominations they have their problems too. Other religions? Eh, no. It's Christ or nothing for me. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. No, I'm not a huge Pope Francis fan, and I know that he's created a great crisis of faith for many people. Uh, along And I get emails like that all the time, especially after fiducius supplicants. Oh, the church is blessing gay people. Now I can't stay in this church. Well, read the document. All right. It, it doesn't yeah. say that. Uh, I think it wants to say that, but it doesn't say that. Uh, the fact is, I apply a minimalist standard here to all of this. The Pope hasn't taught heresy. So the, the papacy remains intact. The church remains infallible and indefectible. But we've got a bit of a... We've got a bit of a problem, Pope. Let's put it that Mm -hmm. way. (laughs) This too shall pass. Cling to that arboreal presence. Cling to Christ. Amen. Well, one
0: final question for you, totally unrelated to the book, because I told my friend Sean I would ask you. If you could pick the next doctor of the church, the next person declared as a doctor of the church, who would it be? Joseph Ratzinger. I love it. That's a good, that's a good, uh, it's a good answer.
1: <laughs> yeah. Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, I would say my guy Hansu was from Balthazar, mm-hmm. but I, 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 I hesitate from that simply because even as someone who is profoundly committed to Balthazar's theology, hook, line, and sinker, he was very speculative and he had esoteric mm-hmm. viewpoints on some things that I think really pushed the envelope. And I, therefore a doctor, of the church should be somebody who uh, an average Catholic can turn to and say, "There's, there's nothing here that pushes the envelope." This, well, mm-hmm. in in a bad sense, you know, in a bad way, okay. Uh, but I think Rotzinger is is he, he advances theology beautifully uh, beyond merely scholastic categories, but he does so in total fidelity to the Church. It's amazing. Balthazar <laughs> was totally faithful to the Church too, but he. He engaged in some esoterica that I, I think would disqualify him as, mm-hmm. as a doctor of the church, but not Ratzinger, not Ratzinger.
0: Yeah, well, you'll get an argument from me. My second born's name is Benedict Joseph, so I'm a big ben, yes. big Ratzinger fan.
1: Uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind but, seeing Cardinal Newman named, or is Newman a mm-hmm. doctor of the church now? Is Newman, I can't think now. Was Newman named a doctor of the church? I don't know, I'm but if, it up, if he is, not he should know. be. Yeah, I don't was, know. I uh, not sure. Yep. Yep. Yes, he was. He was named a doctor was, of the church. Uh, last yeah, year. I th- yeah. Pope Francis named him a doctor oh, of the no, church. Oh, no, I'm
0: sorry. They they asked the the U.S. bishops. and the, Asked him to be named a doctor of the church. Him, and uh, the
1: bishops. Maybe that's conference what's of floating England around in my, okay. So okay, okay, not so yet. We what's... can pray for that. That's what's floating in my head. I I thought maybe Pope Francis had approved it. What's floating in my head is it's been asked. Yeah. I'd love to see Mm -hmm. Newman and I'd love to see Rotzinger as both modern doctors of the church.
0: Excellent. Well, I, you know, I said that was the last thing I have to ask you, but I have one more question if you're willing. Um, Go ahead. You you brought up Balthazar and you brought up uh, some of the the times that he pushes things. And one thing I was reading, I I read the book um, that a lot of, like the urns fall on these different ideas. I I am reading it. I haven't finished it. Yeah. Uh, But one of the things that he brought up, which you bring up in the book, and I feel like you sort of soften it. And maybe that was purposeful was this idea of the abandonment or loneliness of Jesus. Uh, And I'm, I'm struggling with that theologically. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around what he means by that. When you read that, how far do we take that? Is he being, um, sort of hyperbolic.
1: No, he's not. It's one of the most controversial ideas in Balthazar. The, the idea, and I, and I go with Balthazar about 95% of the way here. So I'm not mm-hmm. saying this in a hypercritical way, but I want to frankly acknowledge as a theologian, as a scholar, this is this is where some people have, especially Thomists, have problems. Where, Christ, where Balthazar holds that Christ on the cross when he dies, descends into the hell of the damned and that Christ experiences on behalf of the sinner, full alienation and abandonment by God, the full significance of what hell is the absence of God. So Balthazar asks the question, hmm. how can a member of the Trinity experience the full absence of God? So then he develops a Trinitarian theology where he says, The kenosis, a Greek word meaning descent, the kenosis, the descent of Christ into hell finds its grounding, its possibility in what he calls an ur kenosis, a foundational kenosis within the Trinitarian relations themselves, where the love that characterizes the Trinitarian relations is a love of infinite gift reception, where the father gives himself infinitely to the son and the infinitely receives, and then the son receives, and, the, and then the son gives infinitely himself to the father. But in that, in other words, what Balthazar is insinuating is the father, in a sense, divests himself entirely of his fatherliness, if you want to put it, into the son, and vice versa. But in the perichoresis, in the circumcision of the trinitarian relations, that gift reception is so infinite it forges a common. A, a common sort of divine essence, a unified divine essence. Now this is deep mm-hmm. esoteric stuff, but some view that as overly importing categories from the philosopher Hegel into, into the Godhead. Uh, uh, like what, what Hegel's speculative good Friday and we're getting into deep waters here, but yeah, I, I, I softened it a bit in the book because I'm not certain I want to go as far mm-hmm. as Balthazar goes in his, In his Trinitarian theology about this urkinosis within God as the foundation for Christ's descent into hell. There was a woman, Alyssa Pittstick, wrote a famous book, I can't Light into Darkness or something like that, where she was hyper, hyper, hyper critical. This is like fifteen years ago of Balthazar's theology of Christ's descent into the hell of the damned, which she views as heretical. I don't view it as heretical, but even Joseph Ratzinger says Ratzinger comes very close to following Balthazar down this path, but stops just short and yeah. says, this might be a bridge too far. I don't know. I don't know. It's very clear. I mean, Rotzinger and Balthazar were close friends and Balth- Rotzinger deeply sympathized with what Balthazar was trying to say here. The deep, mm-hmm. deep, deep solidarity of Christ with all sinners, all the way to the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we, yes. Balthazar then boom, and of course, there's also then the fact that he bases some of this theology on the mystical experiences of Adrian von Speyer mm-hmm. and her experiences of the Trinity and hell and so on uh, so yeah it's it's a it's a it's a big controversy
0: <clears throat> well, and it's one that I hadn't really stumbled upon until now and it's uh very you know it's inspiring curiosity in me which is always fun but I, I, I thank you for going into it a bit more because um, Sure. I guess sort of on an intuitive level, I understand Jesus going to the furthest lengths to show his solidarity with humanity as fully man, um, that he suffered what we've suffered. He understands us from the inside out.
1: Uh,
0: That seems fitting, absolutely. Um, But I mean, I I was always taught that, for example, when he's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That it's sort of this shorthand invoking the psalm Psalm that 22. begins that way, which then at the end
1: it, it resolves. Vindic- right? that, it vindic- God, I know that my yeah. Yeah, I know I'm going to be vindicated. Uh, yes. Um, but there are there are those those mystics in the church's history, though, who mm-hmm. read my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As an expression uh, not of despair, but of a but Christ's mystical participation in dereliction. Mm. Uh, I, I will say this in defense of Balthazar his In his notion of the urkenosis within the Trinity is always careful to show that in the infinite distance of between Father and son that that infinite distance is bridged by the spirit which creates then an infinite unity, likewise, when the Son descends into into the hell of the damned into utter dereliction and goes further than any sinner has gone away from God, he stretches his relationship to his heavenly Father to the breaking point. But the breaking point is maintained and bridged by the Holy Spirit, and paradoxically, therefore, creates creates a um, a unity within God that is a unity of the suffering of love. And uh, this mm. is just this is these are deep waters, and I don't mean to go too deeply into them. Uh, but I just I just want to make sure that the viewers understand. Balthazar is speculative and he's esoteric, yeah. and so on but that he always submitted himself to the judgment of the church and the the magisterium. John Paul made him a cardinal Uh, and that his speculations, those speculative are always in the service of orthodoxy. And if Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, some of them turn out to be a foul of orthodoxy in some way, even Ratzinger said, well, then so be it. It doesn't change the fact that the guy was one of the great spiritual and theological masters of our time. Well,
0: and I'm glad that you went into it because, uh, it's one thing that I definitely attempt to do on, on good distinctions here is to show that not everything that every theologian says is meant to be catechetical. Like there's this, and I know you understand this well as a theologian, like yeah, there's this whole field of speculative theology that in my mind, frankly, should never see public light of day. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it's, Absolutely. Yeah. Ratzinger and Balthazar can have that conversation over tea, but or a you know, nice Bavarian ale or whatever. But yeah, there's uh there's certain depths, as you say, of, of theological speculation well, that are just yeah. that
1: speculative and to, Remember too, the Balthazar in his theology and in his development of it was his response to the philosophical and theological movement within Germany beginning in the 19th century of German mm. idealism, which had infected both Catholic and Protestant theology. The idea that God is reducible to the historical process mm. uh, and, and is in some ways not unlimited in his omnipotence and so on. It's, it's complicated, but so Balthazar, whose original degree was not in theology, but when it was called Germanistics, Uh, what his dissertation was called The Apocalypse of the German Soul, Mm. saw in German history a recurrence of Gnosticism over and over and over again. And he saw modern German idealism as the latest iteration of that. And so Mm. he sought to develop a a theology of God and Christology that took into consideration the deep and profound constitutive importance of history and subjectivity as the German idealists were doing, but then to, in a sense, outdo the German idealists to show how the Christian evangel actually has a better accounting in its concept of God than than they do in their concept of God for all of this historicity and so forth. Now, whether or not Balthazar achieved what he set out to do in his dialoguing with German idealism is, is a matter of open you know debate, but that's what he was doing. He wasn't catechizing. Mm-hmm. No. Well, and there's, there's certain
0: texts sort of on, on the other side of things, uh, especially when we're looking at history and the evolution of ideas. I know uh, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn and uh, Benjamin Weicker have a phenomenal book called politicizing the Bible. Um, I'm not sure if you read that one. It's like, that thick I've and seen it's just, it, but I, I it, haven't read it. No. It's, it's really, it's excellent. I mean, I'm very historically oriented. That was my undergraduate degree. And I, I just love the way they trace through, um, sort of these different ideas of demythologization and Bible critique of the last hundred years, but show yeah. that it started much further back then people are usually willing to go. Usually they go to the Enlightenment. Well, they go back further to William of Ockham and Marsilius Anomalous. of Padua. Right. And and so it's neat to kind of see that. But at the same time, sort of taking that on the other side of things, at the service of the gospel, okay, so Balthazar sets out to do this thing. If he accomplishes it, great. And if he doesn't, also great. I, In my mind, it seems like that desire for truth, the desire to... Yeah. Uh, re-examine continually examine the mystery of Christ and all of its length and breadth and depth and width, it's not wasted as long as it's at the service of the church. And as you say, at the end of the day, being a true son of the church and and saying, okay, that went too far
1: or. Yeah. And it's also important to understand that Balthazar never held an academic theological post. mm. He spent his entire adult life as a spiritual director and Mm. as a chaplain in, in Basel in Switzerland. So he was actually deeply, deeply enmeshed and concerned with the spiritual growth mm. of just average, average Catholics. His theology formed kind of a background, I'm sure, mm. to that spiritual direction. Uh, but he never forgot, he never forgot what his primary vocation was, you know, as a priest in that regard. But all that said, I don't want to leave the impression that his theology is nothing but deep esoteric speculation. I would say 90% of it is, is of profound importance to the church, a profound importance. He was John Paul II's favorite theologian. He was one of Ratzinger's hmm. closest theological collaborators. There's much in Balthasar's theology that does have a direct bearing on how we do, if you look at how theology eventually trickles down, on how we do catechesis. Hmm.
0: It's definitely a blind spot in uh, in my training and in my own sort of um, investigations. I, I need to read a lot more Balthazar. I uh, I was definitely formed in the more Thomistic lens of things. Yeah. Um, but Why'd my I suggest love of Ratzinger, you... oh, I, th- I think, yeah. broke me of that. Uh, where I would
1: suggest if you really, as a Thomist, if you want to understand Balthazar, don't begin, you know, he's got his massive trilogy, the mm-hmm. five volume, the seven volumes of the theological aesthetic, the five of the theodrama, the three of the theologic. Read theologic. Begin mm-hmm. with theologic. Because I think that's where he really engaged. Or also, then, um, I would say, be volume five of the aesthetics, where he deals with Thomas. Because uh, that's where the interface. Balthazar quoted Thomas mm-hmm. more than any other author, by the way. Uh, so, but what he does with Aquinas, I think is interesting. So sure. Excellent. We'll stop the discussion there for today.
0: Uh, we both have to run and, uh, Dr. Chap, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for being on. Thanks for sharing your wisdom in this book. And then also, uh, with our audience here.
1: Oh, great. Thank you. I'd be welcome. I'd be happy to come back someday to finish this conversation. Excellent. Well, Dr. Chup, thank
0: you. Everyone listening, go to gooddistinctions.com to learn more about what we're doing here. And uh, you can subscribe for free or uh, become a paid subscriber to help grow the channel and all of its various uh, endeavors. Dr. Chup, where can people find your work? Where would you like to point them?
1: Uh, Go to my blog, gaudimitspez22.com. I know that's a mouthful, but type it in. It'll come up. Excellent. I'll put it in the show notes as well. Okay. Excellent.
0: Well, thanks so much. Good distinctions are the spice of life. Dr. Chop, thank you very much. Thank you. Excellent.